Welcome to the Mindset Neuroscience Podcast. In this season, we're going to explore how we can become better as a species at facing challenges and solving problems, especially during unpredictable situations. We're going to do that by exploring the machinery of our body and the biomechanics of resilience, adaptability, and social intelligence. We'll look at our power to control and modify how we use our hands, voices, bodies, breath, and the intelligent systems of our cells, bones, and muscles to unlock our potential as a cooperative and brilliant species. Thanks for joining. Welcome to season three, episode one. In this season, I'm going to do a mix of solo episodes like I did last season and like I'll do today, as well as interviews with people who are not in the field of neuroscience, people who are using their hands particularly and their bodies in variable and adaptive ways, interacting with the earth and nature, natural objects, as well as human-made objects and machines, and looking at how the variability and flexibility that's required in the mechanical motions of our body, our hands, our eyes, also our voice, our face, our body, how the more variety and the more we challenge ourselves to be in situations that get us to do something new, how important that is for our mental health, how much the variability of what we do with our fingers, our voices, our hands, our faces, our bodies, our limbs, how much that actually influences what goes on in our mind. They are inextricably linked. And what I've learned in the last while, particularly a job that I moved for, (laughs) was that we were trying to do a lot for people's minds. And we were in a setting of incredible natural beauty. And yet we did not interact with that nature. We didn't do anything different with our bodies And I think there's a limit to that. I think if we continuously only go into our minds and focus and rely only on words, which is something I obviously do a lot. (laughs) So this is kind of ironic that I'm making a podcast about this. (laughs) But um, my hope is to inspire all of you to use your the machinery of your body in new ways. And in this episode, I'll go into how we can use that machinery within the context of relationships and interacting with humans, 
because the machinery is used for communication, verbal and nonverbal. But the season as a whole is my hope of integrating and bridging worlds of people who are verbally focused, mind and intellect focused, and people who are doing stuff on the ground with their hands, their feet, their arms, their bodies, and they're doing it in ways that where they don't always have predictable conditions, particularly when you're working with the natural world. So that's my hope to bridge these worlds, cross-fertilize ideas. And my personal experience is that being in the mind and the intellect too much has its limits. So it's time for us to add some variability to what we do with this incredible, beautiful machinery that nature has endowed us with. And it really is truly incredible. And I will go into some of that beauty and intelligence of that in today's episode. So thank you for joining me for season three. So to start this episode, if you feel comfortable, I'd love for you to try a few of these things. A few different commands to your body. So start with executing the command of expanding your belly. Now clench your jaw. Execute the command of look up, then down. And another command of wiggle your fingers. Most likely, you were able to do those things. You were able to create the command or the instruction, and then your body executed that command. Now, try the following. Command your digestive tract to stop contracting. Command the muscles at the base of your hair follicles to contract and make your hair stand up. Carry out the command of widening the blood vessels in your arms. And execute the command of contracting the iris of your eye. Now, most likely, if you're from Earth, (laughs) you would not have been able to do any of those commands in a voluntary fashion. The difference is that the first set of commands have to do with skeletal muscles, muscles that are attached to the bones of your body through tendons and are under voluntary control. The second set of commands have to do with smooth muscles that are not under voluntary control. In this episode, we're going to go into this idea of what we are able to control in terms of the movements and different aspects of our body. And the reason why I want to do this and go into this idea of the mechanical and motor outputs and commands that we have is that when we really think about behavior, it is 
always related to some type of movement. I use the words move, act, and behave interchangeably. All of them are a mechanical output of an internal fluctuation. So all behavior, when you think about it, behavior is different than feeling. It's different than thought. It's different than sensing. A behavior is a mechanical output. It's a movement. It's a motor movement. And it's tied to something that has gone on internally that is now being expressed outward. And that outward expression, the mechanical output of that, is sent out into the world and creates vibrations and frequencies because mechanical outputs influence and affect atoms and molecules in the air around us, which then hit each other in different ways that create waves that are sensed by other beings because we do inhabit environments with other beings that have sensory receptors. And so this is important for us to think about because when we really dive into regrets and experiences of gratitude, these are often related to action and inaction. When you really think about things that you regret in life, you generally will use the word regret doing. You can regret a thought. You can have a thought and not like the thought, but it can pass and doesn't have to turn into much more. Although that's a whole other episode that we can go into about having more control over the thoughts. But in terms of the actual moment of regret, it's generally tied to the behavior that happens afterwards. The thing that you put out into the world that is received by another. And the response or reaction or feedback is not something that you desired. But that feedback could only really have occurred through this concept of movement or action or behavior, however you want to put it. I can't know someone's thoughts until it is transmuted, transduced into some type of action that I am then able to perceive in some way through my senses, through movement of their body, their facial gestures, their voice and vocal muscles, vocal cords, their fingers and how they type onto a device, etc. So I think the idea of regret and also gratitude or appreciation, I think it's really, really important for us to understand how much the mechanical outputs and the motor commands and motor movements of us as physical beings, how much that plays a role. And there are two big components of this idea of the mechanics and the motor commands, motor movement. One is action or initiation, and the other is inaction or inhibition. And from what I've seen over the years of doing coaching and brain maps and lots of clinical kinds of observation and testing, is that people find themselves either inhibiting too much, not initiating, and that can cause regret. They don't do the thing they really want to do. They don't click the submit button. They don't write the letter. They don't say the words. They don't hug the person 
They don't approach with their body opportunities. Those inhibitions of motor movement can lead to regret. And I also see sometimes the same person or other people with maybe not enough inhibition, too much initiation without some slower time to integrate more information. So too quick to react, to respond, to snap. Too much initiation and action. Too much approach when actually they could maybe pause first and reflect. So it's this big spectrum, and I think all of us dance on different ends of it, of sometimes feeling like we've moved too much and too fast with not enough information and we regret it, and sometimes not enough and we haven't initiated. And I think that both of those are related to this concept of regret and also attaining our desired outcomes, our goals. So the more we understand the motor system, I think that we can start to detect patterns in our own initiations and inhibitions of movement and how our actions, these mechanical outputs, bring us closer, more towards our desired states and desired outcomes or move us away from them. So an important thing to think about when we are reflecting on motor outputs, mechanical movements, mechanical outputs, are these three things, speed, power, and direction. So like I was saying in the last section, one thing I see is that sometimes the things we are doing that don't lead to our desired outcomes are because we are doing them too fast with not enough information. So we're reacting too quickly. We're getting something in our environment, in our relationships, and we type too fast, we call too fast, we speak too fast, and we do it without pause and without control, in a sense. And I'm going to go a little more into immature and mature circuitry later in terms of that. The other is power, and by power, uh, we can talk about in sense of maybe volume as well and amplitude, which I'll go into also in another section, which may be that it's too much or not enough. So sometimes the volume and the, in a sense, if you think about the pressure, the volume of the voice, the power of how a person is typing in terms of the letters, the impact the digits are making on the screen. When there is a lot of power and maybe too much power, there could be a little bit of something going on in terms of a person being protective or defensive or on the attack. Direction is another thing to think about, that sometimes we are directing these mechanical outputs, these movements, these initiation of movements or inhibitions in the wrong direction. So it might be that we are yelling at somebody and it's not as related to that person as if we were to dig deeper, as we would start to understand. 
or even sometimes a goal. Maybe there's too much initiation towards this kind of goal, such as checking your email, checking your Instagram, a lot of initiation of muscle movement there, a lot of motor commands going towards the fingers and the hands for grasping and typing and checking and clicking and tapping. And maybe not enough initiation and postural adjustment of the body to move towards something that would bring you more reward in the long term, such as writing that book or creating whatever that is, having that conversation. So part of this has to do with speed, power, and direction. And also in terms of our desired goals, how much we want to build as a framework for our long-term well-being. So sometimes our motor outputs, our mechanical movements, are being driven more for just this moment, and that's that speed aspect. What we want fast. We want a reaction fast from that person. And then on the flip side, like I was saying, there are some times where either the same person or someone who has more of a tendency of this, of not initiating enough. So having lots of thoughts, lots of feelings, but never actually posting anything, never actually sending a message, never actually initiating a conversation. So this mechanical output is a really big part of our lives. And in many of my podcast episodes, I've talked a lot about sensory stuff and the visceral and in a sense, more psychological aspects. And that is something I've noticed in many of the clinics and organizations I've worked with. And I want to bring just some awareness to the skeletal muscular system and how important it is for us. And one reason also for that is because mechanical output is required for feedback. If we don't put something out there, it is hard for us to get feedback back because the putting stuff out there is what creates the ripple effects, creates the reactions in others. And from that, we can then integrate and adapt and adjust for the next. If we don't ever initiate any kind of movement or action, we don't get that feedback. So we don't get closer necessarily to our desired state or goal. So avoiding all things, avoiding friendships, avoiding relationships, avoiding putting stuff out there, avoiding publishing things. None of that gives you the feedback you need in order to course correct and make adjustments. An example would be if you were throwing darts or shooting arrows. If you don't take the first attempt, you don't know how to make adjustments to the speed and power and direction, the angles of how you want to throw in order to get closer to whatever the target is. You have to actually initiate that movement. And then alongside with that, you may have to inhibit certain other movements or slow certain things down. So there's a dance, again, of this initiation and inhibition. Now, a really important part of, of that, that idea of this mechanical output for feedback, is that our 
social interactions are truly what matter the most to us. I have seen this in over a decade of working with different kinds of patients and clients, is that what matters the most to most humans is the impact they're having on somebody else, whether this is groups of people or on the intimate one-on-one or family or friendship, it doesn't matter. But how we affect other people is extremely important to us. And that is tied into our co-regulating social nervous systems. How we use this mechanical output, these initiation of actions and inhibitions of actions, is deeply tied to our satisfaction as a social species. So it's something to think about in terms of the different movements we make that affect the humans around us. And in the one of the later sections, I'm going to go specifically into different parts of us that we can use and think about more of these initiations and inhibitions on a mechanical level to help us with that. So with that idea of these mechanical outputs and social interactions, part of what I was just talking about in terms of this feedback that we put out in order to adjust, we do need to allow for that feedback to occur and then actually make adjustments to our motor movements. If we just keep putting motor movements out there and then we're getting responses back and we never make adjustments if it's not the way we are desiring it to be, then we're just repeating ourselves. And that, in a sense, is a reflection of immature circuitry. It means that it's not, the mechanical outputs are not being responsive to feedback that's being received. And you can call that being stuck. So from an attachment perspective, we look at the idea of maturity and immaturity. And immaturity is aligned with this idea of being stuck. Being stuck meaning continuously repeating actions that may have come from a long time ago, particularly in childhood, that were in a sense adaptive in air quotes for the environment you were in, but you keep repeating them in other relationships without making adjustments, without taking in that they are not necessarily giving you the outcome that you want. In order to access a more mature system for this these mechanical outputs that are adaptive and flexible, we generally need to involve the circuitry that's associated with executive functioning, which is more or less related to the prefrontal cortex, as well as many other networks in the brain. It's a network idea of the brain. There's not really regions that control everything. All, it's all interconnected networks, but there is some associations with these frontal areas, in particular the prefrontal cortex, when it comes to the idea of inhibiting certain impulses, which really are these movements, these mechanical outputs, as well as being more flexible and being able to pause and then allow for other explanations to be happening on that cognitive level. And also weighing of pros and cons and having just these moments of, in a sense, cognitive type of activity that happened before some of the mechanical outputs. So involving more of those features of our circuitry that have to do with a little bit of inhibition. And then when it comes to the initiation and the approach, it's not a very fast response of initiation of movement. There is a pause first, and then there can be this initiation of movement. And again, I'll go into it more, but when I'm talking about movement, particularly when it comes to 
our social connections. I'm talking about things like how we use the pharyngeal and laryngeal muscles, for example, in terms of modulating our voice, how we use our diaphragm and lungs in terms of the volume of our voice, how we use the muscles in our face for what we are expressing, how we use the muscles in our eyes in order to focus on somebody, and how we use our hands to grasp or cling to certain objects for self-soothing or consumption, or whether we can release our hands and release those objects so that we're not so distracted, and how we use our postural movements in order to sit with somebody, have an open stance with somebody, relax some of the muscle tension as we are with somebody, for example. Those are some of these motor mechanical outputs that affect our social communications and our relationships. In future episodes, I will talk more about other areas of this idea of mechanics and movements of our body. But in this episode, I wanted to focus on this idea of the social interactions and how much mechanical motor commands and movements are important to that. So now that we've gone over, in a sense, the importance of understanding the machinery of our body, I'll go into some classification of the different aspects of the nervous system. So humans, in a sense, have two components of a nervous system, a peripheral and a central nervous system. The central nervous system is the brain and spinal cord, in a sense, the command center. And then the peripheral nervous system are the nerves and ganglia outside of the brain and spinal cord. And the main function of the peripheral nervous system, those nerves and ganglia, is to be a relay between the central brain and spinal cord and the rest of the body. Within the peripheral nervous system, it does that. It relays all these different, this information from the brain and spinal cord to the rest of the body in two different ways in two different systems. One of those systems is the autonomic nervous system, which regulates bodily functions and influences the function of internal organs. It is under involuntary control, and it consists of smooth muscles and glands. Smooth muscles are involuntary. They're non-striated, meaning they're not striped, and there's the reason they're not striped is for because of different functions that it serves. And they're found in the walls of hollow organs, such as the stomach, intestine, bladder, uterus, blood vessels. So the autonomic nervous system has two branches. Some people talk about three branches, the sympathetic, parasympathetic, and enteric. I'm just going to talk about sympathetic and parasympathetic very briefly. I went over it much more in depth in season one, episode five. So you can refer to that episode. But just very quickly, within the autonomic, the branch of the sympathetic nervous system is related to quick response mobilizing mechanisms. And remember, this is from the smooth muscle perspective, the involuntary perspective of that. And then the parasympathetic nervous system, which is more of a slowly activated dampening system. Again, from the 
involuntary smooth muscle perspective. These can work somewhat in conjunction with the other system that I'll talk about in a moment that has to do with voluntary control and muscles. But that, just in a very quick overview, are aspects of the autonomic nervous system, the involuntary nervous system that helps control and influence our bodily functions. The other division of the peripheral nervous system, remember, which is the relay between the brain and spinal cord and the rest of the body, is the somatic nervous system. The somatic nervous system is the voluntary control system. It involves the voluntary control of body movements via skeletal muscles. These are the muscles that are attached to the bones of our skeleton via tendons. And within the somatic nervous system, there are, this, as well as the other systems, but we'll just talk about the somatic right now, there's sensory and afferent fibers that carry signals from receptors of the body to the central nervous system and motor nerves, which carry motor commands from the central nervous system to the striated skeletal muscles. The somatic nervous system also includes reflex arcs. Those are slightly different. They follow different pathways. Those are not voluntary, and there are different types of reflex arcs. There's autonomic ones and somatic ones. So just quickly... Within the somatic system, a reflex arc is a path followed by nerves that carry sensory information from a receptor to the spinal cord or brainstem and then carry the response generated by the spinal cord or brainstem to the effector muscles via a very quick path. So it doesn't involve so much of the cortical different areas. So there are a lot of different types of reflexes. A couple to mention can be, for example, the blink or corneal reflex, which is just involuntary blinking when the cornea is stimulated. So as you can see, there are, so the muscles are being moved for the eyelids, but it's not under voluntary control. There's the cough reflex, which is repulsion of air after a sudden opening of the glottis and irritation of the trachea. There's a sneeze reflex, a rooting reflex, which is more of a primitive reflex in newborns where they turn their head toward anything that strokes the cheek or mouth. So there's an obvious, that's skeletal muscle being used, but this is more of a reflex. There is the startle reflex, and that's involuntary protective movement. Interestingly, with the startle reflex, there's some research that's showing that there is a certain type of pathway for hand grasping where we grasp objects that is related more to one type of pathway um, involved in the startle reflex. But the individuated finger movements of humans specifically are not affected by that same pathway. There's a more of a cortical pathway involved in individuated finger movements. So I think that's interesting for us to think about that we have, there's something very special about our individual finger movements that make us very human and maybe something for us to think about in terms of having more control and attention about what we're doing with those. So those are just some examples of reflexes that are still part of the somatic nervous system, but not under voluntary control. Apart from those reflexes, and there's a, a decent list, the rest of what I'm talking about is what the somatic nervous system does, which is the voluntary control of body movement via skeletal muscle. I'll just mention one other type of muscle, which is cardiac muscle. It 
is striped, just like the skeletal muscles, but is not voluntary. It's involuntary. So that's a whole separate category. Now, again, why it's important for us to just think about these things is that I think it's really powerful for us to have in our mind that we are a skeleton that is being moved via our muscles. We are using muscles to move our bones in order to do stuff. That's what lets us hold something, touch something, type, talk. All of it has to do with bones and muscles moving. And the the way we are moving our bones is through these muscles, which are voluntary. So the more we understand that, the more we can understand that we have voluntary control of what we do with our bodies, with our face, with our voice, with our fingers, with our eyes. I think it's really important for more of us to really understand this, that we have voluntary control. It doesn't always feel like we do, but like I mentioned, only those specific reflexes are not under voluntary control. The rest is. So if we can get more in tune with this voluntary control and the fact that we have these muscles moving bones and that this movement, that mechanical output, is what puts stuff out there in the world that gives us feedback about how we're doing, how are we being received, and how are we creating new things through these movements. I think that just understanding that can give us a sense of power and pause to reflect on how do we want to move and how do we potentially want to move differently than we've moved before. And again, I'm just going to keep repeating this because the word move is so associated with this idea of maybe walking or dance or sport. And I'm also very much adding this idea of movement is related to social communication. Not a single thing you do that is received by another is done without some kind of movement. The only way a person can detect what is going on inside of you is if they receive the vibrations that are created by your bones moving. And you move those bones through your voluntary muscles. That's the only way a person can know what's going on inside of you. They cannot read your mind. They may be able to detect all of the different reflexes that are happening. The smell, the pupil dilation, the electric conductance of your skin, all of those are also happening. Those are all creating vibrations and frequencies. But in terms of what you have control over and what you can add to the interaction, which can help them understand and translate what's going on with you, is through these mechanical movements. Sometimes it's touch, sometimes it's eye gaze, sometimes it's voice, sometimes it's typing, sometimes it's approach and proximity, sometimes it's other things, but all of, all of it has to do with movement. And in the next section, I'm going to go into different components of what we can really pay attention to in terms of these mechanical outputs and movements in order to notice our own patterns and potentially reflect on and initiate or inhibit different things so we can try different combinations, try different experiments in a sense so that we can get different kinds of feedback and then make adjustments as to what gets us closer and closer to what we truly want. And generally what all of us truly want is a desired internal state that is often very related to a sense of safety and acceptance and autonomy within our social relationships. 
So I'm going to talk about five different components we can think about in terms of this idea of mechanical outputs, motor commands, these voluntary muscles, and what we can do to modulate them in a sense as a way to experiment and try different formulas, different combinations within various aspects of our life. So the first is breathing. And what we need to understand about breathing is that when you inhale, for example, you don't do anything to the air. You use your voluntary muscles to expand the space inside of you and air naturally flows in. You then use skeletal muscles. You use these voluntary muscles to make the space smaller inside of you and air flows out. So you are just creating space inside of you when you breathe and then making that space smaller. So understanding that, you can choose to play with how you breathe, how you're breathing in this moment, how you breathe as you talk to somebody, how you breathe in those moments before you're going to do something you're nervous about, how you breathe as you think about someone you're angry with. This is all under your voluntary control. And the more that you reflect on that and the more you integrate the aspect of voluntary control, you are involving those prefrontal features of executive functioning, which just get more and more strengthened and powerful as you go. The more you do it, the stronger they become. And it creates a really beautiful feedback loop because the more you're able to control, the more you notice that as you are able to modify and control and adjust, you get better at creating a wider repertoire of these motor commands and motor movements that you can play with, where sometimes you breathe really fast because it gives you more energy and you initiate more. Sometimes you breathe differently, deeper and slower, because that helps you pause and feel more still and peaceful. It's about adaptability and flexibility and increasing the repertoire of what we're capable of experiencing. And part of what we're capable of experiencing is expanded by our ability to play with and adjust these mechanical motions, these voluntary commands of our skeletal muscles. So as we think about each of these pillars, breathing as the first one, I'm just going to put two words out there in terms of what our goal might be. And it's not a right or wrong in either of these, but the goal may lean towards connecting or it might lean towards protecting. So just notice that. Generally speaking, connecting is when we feel safe and protecting is when we don't feel safe. And something to think about in that, in that realm is are we protecting because something is actually dangerous or are we protecting because we have always protected and there was a reason we protected when we were young that may not be necessary right now. When we are vulnerable and small and we don't have a lot of other ways of navigating life and other choices of who we live with and who we're surrounded by, protection is generally just something we do because it's hard for us to have boundaries when we're little, for example, or make other choices. So just know that protecting kind of mechanisms may be associated with something from your past that doesn't necessarily need to be here now. And because we're co-regulating mammals, there's a very big chance that what you would like to do in many social situations you're in is to actually connect, connect and co-regulate with another. So what we can do with our skeletal muscles in with all of these 
pillars that I'm going to talk about, breathing, eyes, voice, hands, and body, is think about whether we are using our skeletal muscles to connect or protect. Protect will generally have more of a tension to it and rigidity, whether that's shrinking or getting tighter with our muscles and mobilizing, but in a more repetitive way. And connecting will have a little more variability and flexibility to it and more openness in a sense. So when we think about breathing, we can just think about how much space we're creating within us. That's one way we can control. And also whether we are breathing in a more vertical or horizontal. So are we letting the lateral radius of us through the expansion of our belly? Is that widening? Or are we going more up and down and the belly is not widening? So just two things to think about how much space, and then vertical or horizontal, or you could say laterally, we're breathing. The next is eyes. So again, we can think about connecting or protecting. We have voluntary control over where our eyes move. So something to think about in terms of eyes are speed and location. As you are just in daily life, this is something you can play with. How fast are your eyes moving from one object to the next? Generally speaking, technology and the internet plays with this a lot, and I would say in ways that are not necessarily good for our brain or nervous system. So however many moments you can take in the day to let your eyes be looking at things that aren't moving very fast, so that would include horizons, anything in nature, other than obviously, I guess, a cheetah running really fast, but that's different. That's not what I'm talking about. Um, because for, for what I'm talking about right here is how wide the distance is between the objects. So when you're on a device, the space between what you're looking at and how quick your eyes have to move to go from one location to the next, they're not going very far. It's one little centimeter here to another centimeter there, etc. I'm Canadian, so I talk in centimeters. Using your eyes to allow them to travel wider distances from one object to the next is one way to expand the repertoire, to expand the flexibility and strength of those eye muscles to be able to just have more, just a wider repertoire of what they're able to do and hold. So attention has also to do with how well we are at controlling eye movement, the eye muscles. So that's something just to think about. So speed, so the speed at which we are switching, these are called saccades, and our eyes are moving at all times. That's the only way they can register information. They're never actually still, even when our body is still. But if we can have time each day where we are able to slow down how fast we're moving from one object to the next. So that means actually allowing your eyes to gaze on something. And that's why nature is so important for us. We can gaze and nothing is blinking and switching and moving really, really, really fast as we look at that plant or even birds, even if they're moving, there's, we're able to gaze on them for a little bit. And horizons are also really important for that. The other thing is location. So where are you looking? 
where we look in terms of how our eyes move, that activates different aspects of our brain. We can retrieve memories differently and with more challenge, depending on how our eyes are, which direction they're going. Looking up activates things differently. So just notice that when you're lost in thought, for example, there's a very likely chance that your eyes have gone down somewhat and usually to one side or the other. Often it's right, but it could be left for you. So notice that you are doing that, that you have control over where your eyes are going. And if you want to feel more engaged and present, you need to use the muscles of your eyes to lift them up. And especially in a social interaction, if you want to be present with someone, it can be uncomfortable to have eye contact for some people. So this is, that is up to each person that's context dependent. But if you are able and comfortable, it can be very helpful to actually look at someone and lift your eyes because there is a mechanical relationship between your eyes where they're looking and the muscles inside your ears that help you focus on their voice. So that's just another thing to think about that the location of where we're looking is important. So when we're in a social interaction, being able to look at a person and being able to look in their eyes can be very intimidating actually, but because I think a lot of us aren't used to it, but that is a a sign of presence. It's a frequency that you're sending to them that lets them know that you are truly hearing them. Because as I said, there's a mechanical relationship between where our eyes are looking and our ears actually tensing to human voice. So speed and location for your eyes. And just again, thinking about, are you connecting or protecting? So when you protect, you may focus actually on their mouth more to see if they're angry, for example. Try to see if you can lift up to their eyes. Eyes are where we indicate safety and we can read a lot from people's eye muscles and eyes. When you are in a protection mode, you might notice your eyes darting around a lot to distract yourself or going down because you're feeling ashamed or defensive or insecure. So speed and location for eyes. next is voice. So thinking about prosody and volume. So this is again where we use our skeletal muscles to vibrate, to tense the muscles, our pharyngeal and laryngeal muscles in different ways that modulate the prosody and variability and pitch and tone and all these kinds of things that happen within our voice. And we also use the skeletal muscles like to expand and contract to allow more air, air to be pushed out at different speeds, and that's what controls the volume. So another thing to think about, when you are speaking with people online, etc., are you connecting or are you protecting? And you can play with the prosody of your voice, so seeing how much it feels like you're saying what you really want to say. Are you saying how you truly feel? And how loudly are you doing it? Is it necessary for it to be that loud? And I'll add speed as well. So sometimes slowing down our voice and how we speak allows us to tune in a little more to the visceral sensations and the internal sensations that are occurring within us. 
And that allows us to tune in more to letting our voice actually convey how we feel. So in this moment, I slowed down and I recognized that I feel very safe and I enjoy speaking. And now you can hear that in my voice. And you may even hear in a sense that I have a smile. So that these are the things that we can convey using skeletal muscles. I slowed down using my skeletal muscles and I actually felt my face relax and I feel a smile in my eyes as I speak. And this is allowing me to feel the vibration of my voice even more and allow it to align even more with what I want to convey. So that is voice. The next is hands. So again, we're thinking about, are we connecting or protecting? Two things we can think about in terms of hands are grip and speed. So grip, um, are we gripping things or are we releasing things? As we grip, a lot of what we do when we grip something is we're using, we're reaching and gripping, and a lot of it has to do with self-soothing self-regulation. I've mentioned that before. But if you think about when you're distressed, when you're uncomfortable, what do you notice that your hand grips onto? There is, that's a a fairly primate thing to do. Gripping is, is something that we see in primates. There are different neural pathways associated with that. Notice if you're able to release whatever it is and find another way to feel comfortable without gripping whatever that thing is that you are about to consume or distract yourself with. Then the other piece of that is speed. So how quickly do we grasp? And then how quickly do we use the fingers and different movements in our hands to do something? So sometimes speed is awesome. It means you're in flow and you're just going and you're not really thinking about it. And sometimes speed is coming more from that sympathetic nervous system where you're typing really fast and there's usually a little more pressure and faster breathing and a a feeling of anxiety that's happening as you are typing. Fast typing when you're in flow generally feels smoother. Fast typing when you're agitated and distressed is different. So think about as you are typing and uh, moving your hands, what you're grasping for. Think about this idea of grip and release, and then speed. Also, in terms of hands, when you touch somebody, the slowness of your touch actually matters a lot. We have certain neurons that are only going to pick up when the hand is held onto the skin for a certain amount of time, and there's a certain slow speed to how the movement goes. And there's other neurons that react only to very fast touch, where it's just fast and abrupt. So in order to, uh, for us to really feel touch from another, there's a slowness to it and it's longer. It lasts longer. So it's the same thing with the eyes in a sense. So think about that as well in terms of the speed. And then finally body. 
So one thing we can think of, again, in terms of are we protecting or are we connecting? And in terms of our body, it's more, is it moving toward or away something? And here we can think about what we are trying to move towards and what we are trying to move away. Both can be adaptive and helpful. We may want to turn our body away from one thing in order to allow it to move towards something else. And sometimes we also need to initiate more that we move our body towards something like going outside, doing a workout, sitting in the chair to write, going up to somebody. Those are movements towards. Um, Movement away would be potentially choosing one thing over another. And sometimes stillness is very important. So sometimes we're initiating a lot and we're constantly in motion nonstop. If we feel very agitated and out of balance from that, it might be worth playing with stillness. So actually using the voluntary muscles and that inhibitory control to not move. And that is something that I recommend as a practice, an intentional practice every day for 15 to 20 minutes, is using the executive features of your brain to inhibit movement in your body for 15 to 20 minutes. That inhibition of movement and stillness gives your brain less stimulus that it has to react to in a sense. That can create a whole storm of stuff in the beginning as you're learning about it because you're, you don't know what to do with your thoughts. But as you continue to train yourself and use, you can use different techniques such as a mantra or point of focus like your breath or a sound to keep returning to, that gives your brain a different pattern to work with for a little while that is not constant decision-making and processing of all these different stimuli. So that can be a very restorative thing to do. So that sums up this episode. Really, the bottom line of what I'm getting at is that most of us need to learn how to initiate certain mechanical outputs and inhibit certain mechanical outputs in order to get better at achieving what we really want. And generally, what we really want is a desired internal state. How something feels internally to us is very important. And we can't always know which goal is going to bring us the best outcomes and that internal state, but we can't really know until we initiate movement towards it and then use feedback to adjust. And that may require inhibiting other movements so that we can move towards certain things. The other really important point that I'm trying to make with this is that the way we navigate our relationships, both one-on-one or in public, online, et cetera, affect our well-being and our mental health And it affects our ability to be productive and a contributing and loving member of society. So how we navigate relationships has profound, profound effects on all other aspects of our life. And our behaviors and actions and reactions in relationships, in social scenarios, are mechanical outputs. And some of these mechanical outputs are very ingrained, almost memorized in a sense from our past, And we're responding to needs not being met 
or being intruded upon when we were little. So what we need to understand is that if we're not getting desirable outcomes in our social interactions now, there may be something we need to do with initiating some movements that we don't normally initiate or inhibiting some movements that we don't normally inhibit. And that will have to do with the speed and power and location and all the different things that I was talking about in this episode that have to do with your voice, the prosody and volume, your eye gaze, speed and location, your breath, the volume of it, the space that you create and the speed, your hands, how they grip and release and how fast or slow they do things, and then your body as well, moving towards or away. So the more we just understand that we have voluntary control over so many things, I think the more powerful we will become, the more adaptive we will become, and the more we will start to use those very mature circuits of our brain that have to do with thinking about long-term projections into the future, whether this is really the pattern we want to continue or if we want to try and change things and getting better at weighing whether something worked or didn't work and whether we are using the muscles and bones of our body to connect or protect. And there's not necessarily a right or wrong answer in terms of that, but it is something to think about in terms of what we truly want in certain situations. So I hope you found that helpful. As I said in the introduction, I will be doing interviews later this season and doing a mix of different things with these episodes. So join my website, stephaniefay.com, and add yourself to the email list. That's where I send a lot of my updates. And you can also check out my YouTube channel, Stephanie Fay, and Instagram, Stephanie F. Fay. So thank you for joining me. 